I am stoked that you guys have energy today because one of my best friends is coming and this guy's got energy. And uh, we were laughing about one of our friends who will sh remain nameless, but his, his church is real chill. Uh, you, you just don't get loud in his church, but um, y'all like to get loud. Okay, because he's loud. A lot of you uh, have met Rusty before. Rusty is pastor of Church That Matters. We started uh, planting church, uh, churches at the same time, him in Sand Springs, me in East Tulsa. And we've been on this journey, and our friendship has grown over the years. You're going to be blessed. Will you welcome my good friend, Rusty Gunn? Thank you, thank you. You may be seated. What an incredible honor to get to be here today to just uh, share God's Word with you today. Anybody ready for God's Word? I, I'm actually a big-time um, fanboy of Core Church and, and especially of Pastor Brad Farnsworth. Man, what an incredible guy. He's been a blessing to me in so many ways for so many years now. I've learned so much about life and about marriage and about parenting and about church and ministry. And, and he's a great leader and he's a great pastor. But most importantly to me, he has been a great, great friend. And Brad, I just want to thank you for that friendship and, uh, man, the invitation to get to speak here today. Uh, I see now why you light up every time you talk about Core Church. Man, I would light up too. It's a great church, and uh, we're so glad to be here today. Uh, my, my name, my real name is Rusty Gunn. Um, my parents apparently thought I was going to be a misfire or something. Um, my dad's name was Tommy Gunn, and they couldn't give me a cool name like that. Uh, so Rusty Gunn it was, and I decided I wasn't going to do that to my kids. And so my wife, Megan, and I, we named our kids better names, uh, Gatlin Gunn, 12-gauge gun, BB gun, and Colt 45 gun. And so here's our, our Mother's Day uh, photo there that uh, you can see. We call ourselves the gun show. So welcome to the gun show. And I do have the honor of pastoring Church That Matters, a church that we planted in Sand Springs 11 years ago. Also get to serve as a church planning catalyst for the SEND network of the North American Mission Board, which is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. I grew up in Baptist churches mostly, and so I have a lot of relationships and networks within those Baptist circles. And so they let me help them with church planting. I know that Brad's roots are from the Nazarene Church, and with my roots being in that Baptist world. Brad has often reminded me that, yes, John was a Baptist, but Jesus was a Nazarene, okay? And so uh, I've had to respond, yes, um, but, but Jesus could do no miracles among the Nazarenes because they didn't have faith. And so uh, there's that. But uh, no, I know, I know that's not true, and I know that's not the case here. Uh, I, I've heard, I really have, I've heard of your faith and how God has responded to your faith and done miracles like what we heard of here this morning in that video of Tia. And uh, man, God is doing a work here. This is a church where the Spirit of God is alive and at work. If you know that, say, oh yeah. Now, I love this series that you're in, Pastor Brad, currently um, emphasizing this church's core value of sharing Christ and the idea of inconvenient sharing. And so I want to give us an inconvenient thought to get started this morning, and I hope you're going to write it down. But before we get to it, let me just ask you, if, if you're saved here today, who, who are my saved people? If, if, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say so if you're saved. 
All right? And so, so if you're here and you're saved or if you're participating online on the live stream and you are saved, I want you to write this down. I want you to think about this. I want you to know this. Here's an inconvenient statement. God saved you with someone else in mind. Man, isn't that inconvenient? But it's true. And I'm going to unpack that today as we're focusing on this fruit of the Spirit called goodness. Everybody say goodness. Now, I heard someone say that goodness is kind of like a step fruit. It's, it's not one that gets a lot of attention. It's one that is avoided by some. Some would even kind of despise the idea of goodness. I mean, think about it. There are even nicknames for people who tend to display the fruit of goodness in their life. Sometimes they're called goody two-shoes. Or sometimes they're just called do-gooders, as if that's a bad thing, right? I want you to look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says this. I think we have it on the screen. It says, you were called to what? To do good. You were called to do good because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We should follow in his steps. And so we're told about his steps in another scripture in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. It says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. There's that Nazarene thing again for you, Brad. You know of Jesus, how God anointed him with who? With the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about, what did he do? He, he went about what? Doing good. He was a do-gooder. He was goody two sandals. He was... He was doing it. He was doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Now, I don't want you to miss this next part. For God was what? With him. For God was with him. Now, that word for, for God was with him. For is really, it's a word that means because. Because. Jesus was doing good and healing people because God was with him. Not in an effort to get God to be with him. It was because, it was a result of God being with him, not an attempt to try to get God to be with him. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have come to a point and a time in your life where you have surrendered the control of your life, you've surrendered to Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, God is with you. Just say that with me. God is with you. Because God was with him, because of his relationship with the Father, because of the overflow and, and the, the anointing and the goodness of God's blessings, Jesus went about doing good, and we are called to follow in his steps. See, when God is in you, good comes out of you. When God is in you, good comes out of you. It's just a natural byproduct. It's the fruit of of the spirit. Let me put it another way. Every fruit must have a root. The spirit is the root inside of us, and the goodness is the fruit that flows out of us. The spirit is the root inside of us, and the goodness is the fruit that flows out of us. And so I want today to look at a story in the Old Testament where we see goodness in the context of inconvenient sharing. And we see that the statement that I made a moment ago that God saved you with someone else in mind, we will see this illustrated. I know last week, Pastor Brad uh, shared the story of Mephibosheth. I love that story, the story where we see kindness being illustrated through David's life in 2 Samuel. Well, today we're going to be in 2 Kings. So if you were to take 2 Samuel, turn to the right just a few pages there. There, you're going to come to 2 Kings. 2 Kings comes right after what book? 
First Kings, you're doing a good job here. These are scholars of the Bible. And this helps prove that the Bible is true in every way. Second Kings comes after First Kings. And so in Second Kings chapter 6 and 7, it's a really weird passage. Matter of fact, Polly was working on these slides with me, and she said, uh, I'm really interested to see where this story is going. It's one that's not often preached. There's, there's, there's a whole lot that's going on in the passage. I'm excited to share it. I want to do my best to give you some of the context of where we are in terms of redemptive history. And so I'm going to give you kind of the backstory first. This is like the 1883 to Yellowstone, okay? Except Yellowstone's got nothing on the Bible. I'm just telling you. So Elisha is a prophet, and he's on the scene. And in chapter 6, there's a guy who's cutting down some trees by the Jordan River, and the head of the axe that he had borrowed falls off. It just flew off of the axe handle. And Elisha performs a miracle, makes the axe head float, And he helps this guy out. Then, right after that, is the chariots of fire moment. Actually, it's the sequel. It's it's the maverick to Top Gun. This is actually the sequel because the first chariots of fire moment was in in, in chapter 2. And so you cue the music. Right? Okay, so not, not the movie, and that's not the soundtrack. But this is the biblical account of where Syria is making war with Israel. And so they have set up camp, and every time Israel is coming around, Syria is killing them. But Elisha keeps thwarting Syria's plan. And what he's doing is he is hearing God say, Syria's camped over there. And so Elisha goes to the king of Israel and says, hey, Syria's camped over there. Don't go over there. And so they don't go over there. But by the way, um, what we're essentially talking about here is, is ISIS, Ultimately, like this is, in essence, the same Syria warring against the people of God. So there's a lot of history that goes all the way even up to now that's happening in this place at this time that we're talking about today. And so Syria making war against Israel. And then the king of Syria, his name's (laughs) Ben-Hadad. What a way. Ben-Hadad. And he says, hey, he pulls together kind of his, his posse. He says, somebody is doing an inside job on us right here. Somebody within our circle is a spy. And so this is all going on in about verse 11 or so, and his men come back after kind of investigating. They go, no, 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 no. King, listen, there's no spy. What's happening is that there's a man of God named Elisha, and Elisha is hearing the things that you're saying in your bedroom. He's like Alexa, but better. So, so the king of Syria says, oh, okay then, well, let's get an army together and let's go down to Dothan where Elisha is and let's kill him. And so they take this huge army with horses and chariots and weapons and this huge operation, military operation down to Dothan for this one guy where it's just him and his servant there. And so they come to Elisha and his servant is there and his Elisha, the servant's like, Elisha, we're in trouble here. Well, they're, like, they're coming at, we are in a mess. We are about to get jumped. And, and, and Elisha says, hey, don't sweat it. He said, what? He said, I'm going to ask the Lord to open your eyes. We're just saying about that, open our eyes. We're gonna, we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask God to open your eyes so you'll see what's really going on here. And I want you to remember this today, Core Church, that really often what we see is not all that there really is. That sometimes what seems very unnatural, very truly could be supernatural. 
And the reality is that in your own life, you have no idea what is happening all around you at most times. And you're no field of vision, no frame of reference for the mighty battle that's taking place around you all of the time and the great army that surrounds you every moment of every day because you are the beloved of the Lord. And so Elisha says, Lord, could you open his eyes so he could see that for a moment, that he could see what's really going on. And that's when he sees these horses and these chariots of fire that vastly outnumber all the army of Syria. And so now he's not worried about it. Oh, okay. And Elisha then prays, Lord, strike that army blind. Strike the Syrians blind. And God does it. And so Elisha walks up to this big army of people who are now blind. And he says, hey, guys, I'm not the guy you're looking for, but I can actually take you to the guy who you're looking for. I'm not a military mind of any kind. I'm thankful for those who are. But if I go somewhere and my whole army gets struck blind and somebody that I don't know comes up to me and says, follow me, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Um, so uh, anyway, they, they, they follow him. And they end up in the middle of Samaria, and the king of Israel is there. The whole, the whole army is now surrounded by all of Israel, and they're like, Elisha, what should we do with them now? Should we kill them? And he says, no, cook them some dinner. Okay, all right. So, that, so they cook them dinner, and then they send them on their way, and as they're leaving, Hey, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. Like, go on. But, but as you go, we want you to tell Ben-Hadad, we're right here. Just tell them what's up. Tell them what happened here. Tell them everything that you saw, everything that you didn't see. Tell them all about that. And, and I love the way this happens so often in the Bible. Then the perfect statement comes in in verse 23 uh, of 2 Kings chapter 6. It says, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. No doubt, right? Because the last time we tried that, we went blind and we got surrounded so we don't do that anymore, right? I mean, it's like running it up the middle, three plays in a row on the goal line, and they stuffed us every single time. Sorry, that was Oklahoma State in the Big 12 championship last year. So uh, but that, this is Syria. This is bigger implications. So they're like, we got to have a new strategy. So Syria takes up a new strategy. In verse 24, that's where we're going to pick up and kind of read the rest of the story together. It says this, now... It came about after this that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up, and what did, he, what did they do? Besieged Samaria. Now, if you don't know what a siege is, just imagine for a moment that the National Guard came in and surrounded this building and said, nobody goes in and nobody comes out. That, that's a siege. Now, in Samaria and Israel this time, like outside the walls is where all of the food would be grown. It's where all the livestock would be kept. Inside the city is where people would live. And they were protected there within city walls. And so Syria comes and they march around the outside of the city. Now, if, if we can't get out of here, I saw like the communion wafers and we got some of those. But with this many people, those aren't going to last for very long. Like I, I, I'm sure... That, that, I mean, at some point, like, there's going to be trouble, right? I'm, I'm sure in the kids' area there is some goldfish crackers and some kind of juice, okay? 
But, but this is the point of a siege, is like to cut off the supply chain and to starve you out. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. And I'm just telling you, if I know anything about Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, once we run out of coffee, there are some people who are going to lose their mind. And man, when the goldfish crackers run out in the kids' ministry, the kids are going to revolt. I'm just telling you. So we get to verse 25. Nobody in, nobody out. So there was a, a severe famine in Samaria. And they continued the siege against it until a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for five shekels of silver. Now, the question that often comes up in a story like this is, well, how much is that in today's money? But I, I have a different question. How much would you pay to eat donkey head? How much would you pay to eat a donkey head? Like, like I mean, I've eaten some strange stuff on the mission field. Brad, you were in Guatemala recently. You probably ate some, some different kinds of, of cuisine. Uh, I've eaten some stuff in East Asia and India that I'd rather not talk about, but I'm just telling you, like, donkey's head may take the cake over all of it. I mean, I don't, rat was not very great, and dog has kind of a funny taste, um, but, but I'm not eating donkey head. I'm just saying. Pretty sure nobody in here has recipes for that either, right? I mean, but, but that's how desperate things are getting in Samaria. A cup of dove's dung. How much would you pay for bird poop? Can I say poop here? How much would you pay for that? Like we used to light paper bags of poop on fire on somebody's porch and then watch because hopefully they'd come out and try to stomp on it. Like that was all good and, 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 and fun. But, but here's what they're doing. They would use this dove's dung as a fire starter that they're going to cook their bread, which they didn't have. And so now they're going to use it to roast the donkey head. That's the barbecue. Like, y'all come on over this afternoon, we're going to watch the game, and we're going to have, we're going to grill up some donkey head. Now, this is Oklahoma, and there might be somebody who would say, well, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> I hope not. 80 shekels of silver for the donkey head, five shekels of silver just to get the fire started on some bird, like prices are getting high. There is inflation, nothing in, nothing out. All the supplies are stuck in shipping containers on barges off the coast of Los Angeles or San Fran somewhere in the middle of East and, and, and they can't get them to us and things are absolutely getting desperate. And, and I don't need to know how much money that was in today's time to know you could pay me 80 shekels of silver and I'm not eating donkey head cooked over a bird poop fire. Just saying. I'll go to Brahms. I'll go to McDonald's. I'll go to Chick-fil-A. Obviously not today. It's Sunday. Uh, I'll go to Yucco Bell. Heck no bueno. Like, I, but I'm not eating donkey head. But they're getting desperate. Everybody said desperate. Verse 26 says, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, my lord, the king. He answered, verse 27, if the lord doesn't help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? That's where they would process grain, but there was no grain. Couldn't get it in. Or the wine press? Well, that's where they would press the, the grapes into Welch's grape juice, right? And, and they would, and he said, listen, I don't have the means to help you. If God's not going to help you, what can I do? Now, brace yourselves. Verse 28. Then the king asked her, what's the matter? And she said, well, this woman said to me, 
give up your son and we will eat him today. Then we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her the next day, give up your son and we will eat him. But she has hidden her son. I know that Brad talked last week a little bit about the Supreme Court's decision with Roe versus Wade and the overturning of that. And there are some very strong emotions and feelings on all sides of the issue of abortion. But this is like a whole nother level. These are children. I don't know how old they are. doesn't matter. This is the point of the desperation that they have gotten to. Can you imagine that we are besieged and we are so desperate that we start going to the kids' ministry and start picking which kids we're going to eat next? This is the real-life desperation they were facing. And the king realizes how bad it is. In verse 30, he says, it says that when the king heard the woman's words, he tore his clothes. Then as he was passing on the wall, the people saw that there was sackcloth under his clothes next to his skin. Now, what that means is the sackcloth would be worn under your clothing if you were in mourning. He already knew things were bad, but he was putting out this image He was being the strong leader that he needed to be. He felt like for those people in that time, there was no vulnerability. There was no transparency. He was just being the strong king that he was supposed to be. This woman's saying, hey, I think you can even help me. And now that he's torn the clothes, the people now, when your leader loses hope, they know they're in trouble. It says he announced, may God punish me and do so severely if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. We're going to do something now. Now, why is the king mad at Elisha? That's weird, isn't it? Well, it's because Elisha is the man of God. He's the one who the king thinks has the power to manipulate God to make him do something good for us. Now, this is interesting. True story. Back in 2020, when COVID was just beginning kind of at its height in all of our minds and all of the things going on, I was actually accused by a young lady in our city of praying that COVID would come so that our church would grow. Our church did grow during that time. It's it's incredible. But I'm like, I've I've got a lot of faith, and I've asked God for some big things and even some weird things, but come on, really? Like, you're blaming me for COVID, the whole world thing that's happening? Wow, you've got a lot more faith in me than I have in me. And so that, but the king is that mad at Elisha. This is all his fault. He wants him dead. He's blaming him for all of the bad things that are happening to his people and to the nation. Now, paraphrasing verse 32, Elisha, he's hanging out at his house, chilling with the elders. And then because the Lord is letting him see what's going on, he tells them, he says, hey, there's some guys that are going to come and and they're going to be sent by the king to come kill me. And like right after those words leave his mouth, there's a knock on the door. Can you imagine? Hey, somebody's going to come kill me. Like, it just happens that quickly. I mean, that's creepy. Like, sitting at home, somebody's going to kill me. It's like, hey, turn off the lights. <laughs> Hush the baby. Nobody's home. But Elisha refuses to come out. And finally, they, they start interacting. And we get to chapter 7, verse 1. And Elisha just unpacks it. He says, here's what's going on. It says, Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow at Samaria's gate, six six quarts of fine flour will sell for a shekel of silver, and 12 quarts of barley will sell for a shekel of silver. The captain, the king's right-hand man, responded to the man of God. Look, even if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? And Elisha announced, you will, in fact, see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. 
And here's what Elisha was saying. There is going to be the most incredible economic turnaround in the history of the world. Like you, you're, you're not going to have to eat donkey heads. You're not going to have to eat your children. Everything's going to be affordable. We're going to make Israel great again. Like that's the thing. Then the captain of the guard is saying, hey, 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 this guy is writing checks with his mouth that his body can't cash. There's a little Top Gun reference for you. If you know, you know. He's saying, listen, this guy is running his mouth and saying things that he can't produce on. This guy, this, this guy is making empty campaign promises. He says, if God were literally to open up the windows of heaven and pour down everything that he possesses, he couldn't make that big a difference. And we all kind of want to give a little tisk tisk to the captain at this time. But don't every single one of us have something or someone in our lives that in the quiet recesses of our mind, even though we may be praying, this is a church of prayer, this is a church that fasts, we may be fasting, or maybe that's the reason we're not fasting, because in our heart we're just going, you know what? God can't do anything about that. I mean, he does a lot of great things, and man, we praise him for that, but he, that's too big. God's never going to do anything about that. It's too late for that. That person is too far from God. Their story is just too, they're too close to the gospel. Like if God poured out all of his power, the walls are just too high and the walls are just too thick. And so this, there's never going to be broken down or overcome. That's exactly what the captain of the guard is saying. Like, like we sing about it all the time. We sing about it this morning. We see it all throughout this book that he can move the mountains, that he can, he spoke the mountains into existence. He doesn't even have to push them. He could speak them out of existence. His will is accomplished and it's executed perfectly and flawlessly and immediately. He does whatever he wants when it pleases him and how it pleases him and it does please him. And he can do it. That's the bottom line. He can do it. Look at your neighbor and say, he can do it. Whatever it is, that mountain, that wall that needs to be broken down, that thing that needs to be overcome, he can do it. Look at the neighbor on the other side, the one you don't like as much, and tell them too. He can do it. And so at this point, the story pivots in a really weird way because we have all the people who are desperate inside the city. In the next verse, we're going to see four men who have leprosy. Now, leprosy is, a, of course, a, a nasty skin disease, and those who were having leprosy were considered unclean. They wouldn't be allowed to come into the city. And imagine again, this building now at Core Church has been besieged by the National Guard. We're all uh, in here, and, and the National Guard is out at about the street and around the trees out here on the perimeter. And they're all there, and the National Guard, here's these, these four lepers, and they're sitting just out in the parking lot. It's kind of no man's land, the buffer zone. And, and they're looking, and the National Guard says, hey, if you come over here, we're going to kill you. And you know that if you come in here, like we're eating people in here, and you're people. And so you're not coming back in here. So if you come in here, you're going to die. If you go over there, you're going to die. That's the situation these four lepers are in. Verse 3 says, now four men who were lepers were at the entrance to the city gate. They said to each other, why just sit here until we die? If we say, let's go into the city, we'll die there. Because the famine is in the city. But if we sit here, we'll also die. So now, come on, let's surrender to the Syrians' camp. If they spare our lives, we will live. If they kill us, we'll die. So it's really more severe than if the National Guard. This is if ISIS is standing outside. The nation at war with Israel. They're outside in the fields. They're out in the street. They're just waiting. And these four lepers are looking at their options. If we sit at the gate, we're going to die. 
If we go inside, we're going to die. Famine's in the city. Nothing there. We're going to die. Let's just go over to the camp of the Syrians, and maybe they will have mercy. They never have before, but maybe this time they'll have mercy. And if they don't, at least it'll be over. Have you ever been desperate? Have you ever been, I mean, really desperate? You don't know what to do. Every option that you have is awful. Desperate. That, that's where these four men were. The worst that could happen is that they would kill us, and then at least we don't have to mess with it anymore. Verse 5. So the diseased men got up at twilight to go into the Syrians' camp. When they came to the camp's edge, they discovered no one was there. For the Lord had caused, everybody say the Lord had caused. The Lord had caused the Syrian camp to hear the sound of chariots. Does this sound familiar? Probably the same chariots. The sound of horses and a large army. The Syrians had said to each other, the king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come and attack us. So they had gotten up and fled at twilight, abandoning their tents, their horses, their donkeys. The camp was intact, and they had fled for their lives. When these diseased men came to the edge of the camp, they, were, they went into a tent to eat and drink. And they picked up gold and silver and clothing, and they went off. And what did they do with it? They hid them. Then they came back, and they entered another tent, picked things up, and they went out, and they hid them. And so the lepers come into the city, and it's like Norman on game day. It's a ghost town. A bunch of tents, a bunch of animals, a bunch of food, a bunch of treasure. I mean, it, it, man, it's like, here's, here's the tent, here's the steeple, open the doors, and like, where, where's all the people? There's nobody there. Where did they all go? And they're like, this is awesome. This is amazing. So they gather up as much stuff as they can, and they carry it, and they go, and they bury it, and they hide it, and then they go into the next tent, and they gather up all that they can, and they eat as much as they can. They take all the stuff, and they go, and they bury it, and they hide it, and then they go to the next tent, and they eat all they can. They take all the treasure, they bury, and it's, it's a cycle. It's on repeat. And they're going from tent to tent to tent. Now, how did this happen? Who caused it? The Lord the Lord caused this, that the enemy would hear a mysterious sound of, of chariots and horses and an army, and they ran. And so these lepers now have found the jackpot. They have hit the mother load, and they're, all, they're getting all that they want and more, and they're hiding it, consuming all they can, storing up the rest for later. And then verse 9, and I just want to say, as we get to this, he who has ears, let him hear today, Lord. Verse 9. Then they said to each other, what we are doing, they said to each other, we're, we're not doing what is what? What is, what is good? Today is a day of what? Good news. But we are what? Keeping silent. What we're doing is not good. Today's a day of good news. But we're keeping silent. If we wait until morning, our punishment will catch up with us. So let's say the next three words out loud with me. Let's go and tell the king's household. Listen, I walk around my city 
Sand Springs, and I love my city. For, for years and years, I would drive I-44 before I lived in Oklahoma again. I would travel I-44 down with my band when I was in college in Missouri, and, and we would go to, to New Mexico from Missouri and then back and from Texas to Missouri and all these places. And for years, I made the comment that I've traveled all over the world, but one of my very favorite views in all of the planet is looking north at the Tulsa skyline, especially when there's water in the Arkansas River on that I-44 River Bridge, that I love that view. And God, in his great goodness, brought me to where I would see that multiple times a week. And, and then I would get a different perspective as in my city, Highway 97 bridge crosses and I can look to the east and see the east, the, the west side skyline uh, of Tulsa from that river bridge. And it's incredible. I see that multiple times a week. And I, I say this all the time, that in Tulsa, don't be offended, but the west side is the blessed side. <laughs> and the west side is the best side. And I mean it. Nope, no area has what we have. Like uh, Sand Springs, I said this too, that it's Tulsa's and, and really one of Oklahoma's best kept secrets. We have beautiful rolling hills and landscape and views. We're, we're 12 minutes from the lake. We're eight minutes from downtown Tulsa, 12 minutes from Tulsa Hills and shopping and all we want to do, seven uh, minutes to the turnpike where we can go wherever we want to go. We have enough city life to keep us busy, and we're right at the edge of rural country life where we can have some peace and quiet. It's the best of all worlds, our, the history of our city, the people in my city. And I'm sure you feel the same about your city, but that's because you haven't lived in my city. I love my city. But it is also a very tragic and broken city. The very first time that Megan, my wife, and I came to Sand Springs almost 19 years ago, we drove in from 412 from downtown Tulsa, and we came to Highway 97 and headed south across the Highway 97 bridge that I mentioned a moment ago. And there were police cars and first responders there. And a lady who felt, an elderly lady who felt like she had had no hope, had just jumped off of the bridge to her death. Our first time to visit the city. Brokenness. In the past 18 months, we've had two murder-suicides within a mile of our church building where we meet every Sunday. Brokenness. Do you see it in your city? All kinds of Brokenness. In January, a 20-year-old young man who, who had attended worship encounters with our church stuck a 357 revolver to his head and pulled the trigger right in front of two of his friends in their, the friend's apartment who is part of our church. Did you know that when a murder or, or a suicide happens or, or something like that happens, that the first responders come, the paramedics come, the firefighters come, the police, the coroner, and they all do their thing and, and we're thankful for their service. But when the investigation is over, they don't clean up the mess. The blood, the brain matter splattered. They release the crime scene to the family. And now this family who has just experienced the trauma of that happening to someone that they know, someone that they love in their home is left to clean it up. I didn't know that. Never really thought about that until it happened to people that I knew. In the past 24 months, I've helped two families clean up the aftermath of bloodbaths in their homes. One was a shootout between two men over a woman. 
Both men died in the house, blood everywhere, because they had chased each other around the house, shooting at each other. The other was the apartment of this young man where he shot himself. Literally, in both cases, had to use shovels to scoop the blood. Two weeks ago, I preached the funeral of one of the victims of the St. Francis Clinic tragedy where a man walked in and murdered people in cold blood. And we're tempted to, to look at people and shake our heads and say, well, why do people act like that? Why do people do things like that? They do things like that because they're desperate. They're desperate, hopeless. No lasting purpose, no lasting family, no lasting hope, no lasting peace. All the things that Brad was just speaking about a moment ago, they don't know what it feels like to be accepted and loved and brought into a family. We we never should wonder why desperate people do desperate things. How could people eat donkey's heads? Because they don't have anything else. Why would mothers turn on their own children? Because they're desperate. They don't know what else to do. I wonder this morning, how did you come into this faith? How did you come into the abundance of blessing and wealth that we've been singing about and talking about all day today to be an heir of the king, immortal, almighty, eternal, invisible? How did you become his son? How did you become his daughter? Isn't it true that you were sitting on the outside and then discovered that the enemy had been defeated for you? You didn't have to fight the battle. It had already been fought. That supernaturally the enemy was defeated for you. That the camp was empty. And can I tell you what I've observed in my own life? And this has been consistent in most of the church people that I know, that we come into the tent and and we take as much as we can and we ingest it. We eat the bread of life that is broken for us week after week by faithful preachers and teachers of God's word. And man, we just take in that treasure and we might jot jot them down in our little core church notebooks and we might put them in our notes app on our phone and we take as much as we can get and then we bury it and we put it away. And then what do we do next? We go to a Bible study a core group, men's group, women's group, and we do the same thing. We take these treasures, we put them inside, and we bury them. And what do we do next? We find another tent, the podcast of our favorite preacher, a conference, a retreat, the version Bible study plan that we're using, the next tent and the next tent and the next tent, receiving and receiving the blessings of an enemy that we did not defeat, treasures that we did not earn, that we did not deserve, that were gifted to us, and by the way, that we could never dig a big enough hole to put them all in. What are the lepers going to do with all this treasure? There's four of them. Us four no more. We're taking it, they're they're, they're digging holes, they're burying it, going to the next, eating as much as they can, taking it, burying it. How many tents do you think there were? How much food do you think was there? I don't know, but our treasure is limitless. But it hits them, this is a good news day. What we're doing is not good. Good news. It's the Hebrew equivalent of the word gospel in the New Testament. When you see gospel, that's good news. When you see good news, that's gospel. These four lepers were literally saying to themselves when they came to their senses, when they realized that what they were doing was not goodness, they said, today is a gospel day. Today, this is a good news that what we're doing, not good. We are not doing the right thing, keeping this to ourselves. I hope that you and I understand we were never meant to be receptacles of God's mercy. We were always meant to be conduits 
where it would flow through us. We are not the destination. We are the place that it passes through. God saved you with someone else in mind. And I'm telling you that my city is desperate, and this city is desperate. Your neighbors are desperate. Your friends, your family, your coworkers, the people on your street are desperate. And that's why they act the way that they do. Of course they act that way. They don't have any hope. They don't have any reason to believe that anything will ever get better. That's why people get so passionate about politics. Because maybe, just maybe, if we elect the right person, then everything in my life will get better. Listen, some things might get better, but the stuff that really matters is going to stay the same. It's why the the vaccinations were such a hot-button issue and why people are so freaked out about a virus. Yes, it's serious. Yes, it had an impact. But, man, watch those people who are freaked out, losing their minds. They are desperate because they don't have the hope that I have and the hope that I pray you have. And the world is growing more and more desperate, Brad said it earlier. And I think that if, if Jesus were present in the flesh with us today, that he would say to those who are his followers today, though it looks bad all around, though people are so desperate, look what you have, and today is a good news day. Today is a gospel day. We have a phrase at our church, today matters. It's a matter today. Today matters. Today is a gospel. That's what today matters really means at its core, that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of destiny. Today is the deciding day for someone of whether they're going to spend eternity in heaven with God or separated from him for eternity in hell. That's someone's final day on the planet is today. Today is decision day. Today matters. Today is a gospel day. And will we keep the good news to ourselves Or will we go and tell? It's not convenient. It's not easy. These four lepers made a decision. They decided to repent. What were they repenting of? Keeping silent about everything that they had received that was available. It was inconvenient because these guys weren't actually like high society folks. They they had to walk around in their, they had to walk around like totally covered up. They had to carry a bell, ringing the bell to announce and to warn everyone that they were coming and they were unclean so that nobody would get close. You thought wearing a mask and social distancing was a big deal and inconvenient. It's not like they're going to walk into a situation and everybody's going to go, hey, the lepers are here. Everybody sit down and let's all listen to what they have to say. It was inconvenient. They're outcasts. They have no standing, not even welcome in the city. They've been shut out by the very people now that they have to go back and rescue. And I have to believe that someone here knows what that feels like. Look, we're going to go back in. We're going we're to tell them, but nobody's going to believe us. That's not our responsibility. And we don't have time to finish the the whole story. Time is is up. But they weren't believed. The king was skeptic, wanted to test the waters, but not really believe. Listen, our responsibility is to go and tell. Everybody say, go and tell. Hey, today is a good news day. The enemy has been defeated. You, You can have everything that will meet 
the deepest desires of your heart. You can have a family who will love you, and I hope you're experiencing that here with Core Church. I believe that you are. I know that this is a church that, man, where people will come to your rescue. People will share what they have, like the book of Acts, where the early church were sacrificing of their own possessions to make sure that the needs of their church family were being met. Why do people love others like that? It's because we understand what family really is. I don't know about you, but I know what it's like to have my sins forgiven. I mean, I have a lot of them. Yes, I'm a preacher, but you do know that preachers aren't perfect, right? You need to know that. I hope you know that. Brad and the other two pastors we meet with regularly know that I am far from perfect. My, my wife knows I am far from perfect. My kids don't know yet, so please don't tell them if you see them. Um, but no, they know. My, my house church knows. My church staff knows. Our elders know I'm far from perfect. I blow it on the regular, and you need to know that. I, I know what it's like to sin in my anger. I know what it's like to struggle with lustful thoughts and intentions. I know what it's like to be greedy. I know what it's like to eat far beyond the point that it's holy, eat to the point that it's sinful. I know what it's like to struggle with dishonesty. I know what it's like to feel like a failure as a husband, as a father, a failure at your job. Actually, I know what it's like to, to be a failure as a husband, as a father, and in my job. I'm familiar with those things, but, but someone has carried that for me. Someone has carried that and defeated the enemy for me. Look, we say things like this, that I put my faith in Jesus. I put my trust in Jesus. And I want, you to, I want to help you today to understand exactly what that means. And if you haven't done that, Brad's going to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment. But when I was a kid, and my family would go out to eat, and maybe your dad or your grandma or your grandpa or someone else did this to you as well, but we'd go to eat especially with my grandpa, the bill would come and my grandpa would say, well, I hope you brought some money. Anybody else ever had a grandpa or grandma do that, somebody like that? I hope you brought some money. I'm like, Papa, I'm eight. <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing short pants. I grew up in the era between like the short shorts and the jams and neither one of them had pockets. I don't even have pockets. I don't have any money. I don't have a job. Papa, come on. And then my grandpa would say something like this. Well, I hope you like. Somebody did this to you too. <laughs> I hope you like washing dishes. And, th and then the waitress would come with that little, little black folder. And it has the bill in it. And she would come over toward my grandpa. And my grandpa would point to me where I was sitting and say, well, he doesn't have any money. And, and I guess it's part of, like, the application process to be a waiter or a waitress that they're going to, like, in the training say, hey, uh, a dad or a grandpa or somebody's going to come in, and they're going to point toward a kid, and they're going to say, hey, he doesn't have any money, and you have to tell him that he's going to have to wash dishes because the waitress would always come over, and my grandpa would say, he doesn't have any money, and the waitress would say, oh, no, I hope he likes washing dishes. <laughs> I'm like, is this a thing? Did you guys talk before we got here? Like, what is happening right now? And I'm pretty sure there's like child labor laws against that. Like I can't be watching, there's got to be OSHA violations in that. I can't even reach the thing. Like I'm eight, not tall. Like what are we going to do? And then my grandpa would take money and he would put it in the little black folder and he would hand it back to the waitress and my whole family would stand up and we would walk out the door. 
And never once in all of the times that my grandpa did that, never once did I have a waitress or a waiter or a manager run out after me in the parking lot and grab me by the scruff of the neck and say, oh, no, 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 you ate the food, you've got to pay the bill. Never happened. Why? Because my grandpa had paid it for me. He paid the whole debt that our entire family had accumulated at this restaurant. And I don't know, I didn't understand what was happening with that whole black folder thing and the bill and how my grandpa was paid. I just knew that he paid for it and I got to walk out. That's what it means to put your faith in someone. Next time you go out to a meal with someone, they pay for you, understand that you're putting your faith in that person and the payment that they have made. And that's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. Because on the cross, he made the payment for your sin. Paid in full. To die. That's what he said. Paid in full. He put his name on the bill where your name belonged. You know why? Because you were wearing short pants. <laughs> and you didn't have any money. You couldn't even get a job to earn the money to make the payment. And Jesus, knowing that, said, don't sweat it. I will make the payment for you. And this and nothing less is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian. is to say, I believe that when he paid the price, that payment satisfied my debt. And I want you to understand that the difference between lost and found, heaven and hell, hopeless and filled with hope is just one simple thing. Belief. We are believing people. Believing that the payment was good. Not just for the people out there, but also for the people in here. Those of you today, you find yourself struggling with sin, hell raging inside your chest where you sit today, knowing what's happening in your life. Listen to me. The payment is good for you too. So when it comes to goodness, we don't actually achieve goodness. We receive goodness. You hear it? When it comes to goodness, we don't actually achieve goodness. We receive it. And when we receive it, it's a seed planted into our souls. It's a seed planted into our life that all we now do is we simply open up our hands and we let it go out to others. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Goodness is doing good because God is good. And He's been good to us. Has He been good to you? Has He been good to you? Listen, doing good, all the compassion ministry that I know this church does, all the kindness and good deeds and all of those things, those are all fantastic. And we're going to continue to do those things, and they often build a bridge to the gospel with people. But I'm just telling you, I know Core Church, and I know a church that matters. We're not here to make Sand Springs or Broken Arrow a more comfortable place to go to hell from. It's the gospel that is the good news. And it's the goodness that we share the goodness of our God.